from the WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday morning, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for October the 20th, 2019. Welcome to our weekly look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So, time to grab that Sunday paper, get that cup of coffee, and we'll do our best to get your week off to a great start. And I have to tell you, it's pretty darn nice out there. Uh, this is very temperate right now. It is a mild uh, day, and uh, really looking into the week, uh, Rick. Uh, Other than uh, tomorrow, pretty mild a uh, day of uh, days coming ahead. Uh, in the mid fifties for highs. Uh, nothing terribly cold as yet, although <laughs> Stay here we, are, we are getting into late October, Halloween uh, next week. But uh, looking at the, the basic forecast here from Tom Skilling, uh, periods of sun. Uh, some showers, uh, you know, off and on, but uh, temperatures, uh, well, tomorrow in the 60s, uh, but staying pretty much in the mid-50s uh, through the rest of the week, so it'll be fairly nice. Yeah, no, very comfortable. We got a taste, though, of uh, some colder weather uh, being up in northern Michigan here earlier in the week. Uh, uh, needed uh, needed some extra layers, especially walking around out at Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. <laughs> but beautiful fall color. A little, just gorgeous a little frost up there didn't or? see any frost no it was uh it was uh hovering around uh well let's see we were in the 40s oh. so it wasn't it wasn't terribly terribly cool but the wind was the one yes yeah, is always the case you know a wind and cooler temperatures and being close to the lake why you're going to feel it but uh such as some gorgeous fall color oh it's beautiful country yeah it really is yeah it's just wherever you look it's just gorgeous up we, there we we were disappointed, as I was telling you earlier, about this one drive, uh, walking, dri- uh, hiking area and driving area through Sleeping Bear called the Pierce Stocking Drive, right. which is can be stunningly beautiful. Sadly, it was closed because of the high winds were blowing down some trees. So they had branches and things in the road, which they had to clear, and they didn't want anybody getting hurt. So we weren't able to take that drive. And, and no that shortage means, of trees in, no along that ride either. No shortage of trees is right. <laughs> so that just means we'll have to go back. Well, you don't need an excuse to go back no, there. No, I'm just saying I'm going. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's... Although you didn't climb the dunes, no, not this time. <laughs> and I'll tell you, you you would have needed some heavy duty, warm weather gear to climb that with that wind, and the, you know the stress of climbing it. Uh, what you'd be, you're not only facing an uphill climb on a sand dune, right. so you take a half step back. For That's every the step thing. You take. Yes, for every step you take, <laughs> you slide down half. But a- you would be walking just head on into that wind, which could be fierce. Oh. So we we just looked at the dune <laughs> from, the, from the parking lot. From afar, right. yes, yes. Oh, look up there. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, once you're up there, though, it is what a stunning. View. Yeah, oh. yeah. It's a, it's a spectacular vista. 
It, it really is. You can lose sight of the fact that you're you're in the Midwest because you know you have this uh, notion that everything is just flat here. Not everywhere. Oh, the terrain. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. Just as I said, everywhere you look, it's just gorgeous. It really is. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't bring me any uh, any any goodies. I I regret that, and I I didn't get. I always like to get you a local newspaper from some of the towns that we were in. But we were staying with friends and on the go, and uh, weren't able to pick up any goodies. So. Although you mentioned this one thing, you can you know the the whitefish dip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds yeah. There's a uh, Ritz, there's a, Ritz crackers and whitefish dip. There's a local store or a couple of them up there locally owned that have been there for a long time called Tosky Sands Tos- a kind of a combination of Petoskey and mm-hmm. and the sands meaning the dunes up there but their specialty is a uh, is a homemade local recipe white fish dip that you would put on crackers and spreads and so forth and uh, was recommended to us by uh, some friends up there now, see, that sounds like a, a, a good football snack. Perfect football, yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. And speaking of which, we do have a little football this afternoon. Yes, we do. Bears, Just a little, yeah. Bears-Saints at the, the afternoon game. Yeah, they're at three uh, 325. Uh, are they? Do they have any more noon games left? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting because, let's see, first game, Next week 730. is a noon game, isn't it? Next week was 325. The next following week, week was 715. The next week was 325. Then they were uh, at noon against the Raiders. So the next time will be on a noon will be against the uh, Chargers a week from today. Ah, okay. And then three in a row, believe that or not. Really? Yeah. Wow. Three new games imagine, in a row. imagine that. Yeah. Novel concept. Now, what are we expecting today? You know, it'll be interesting. Uh, we, we were talking uh, on the morning show to, to Dan Hampton the other day, and he's uh, not expecting much offense in this game uh, uh, to the point where you know, the score may be pretty low, 13 to 10 ish. Uh, you know, the, the Bears' offense has been pathetic to say the least. Uh, and uh, New Orleans operating with a backup quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater. Uh, again, today, no Drew Brees and no Alvin Kamara. They're, uh, they're all purpose running back. So you would think that uh, this would line up very nicely for the Bears' defense, although the Bears' defense didn't perform up to what they thought they could uh, against the Raiders up in London, yeah. or over in London, I should say. And, and I mean, I really want to see the defense break through, because that is the bread and butter here. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's going to be uh, interesting to watch today, too, because Akeem Hicks goes on the injured reserve. Uh, again, that doesn't mean the season's over. He uh, could return, uh, but it will be uh, a few weeks before he can be able to do that. But when he left the game against the Raiders, they designed a scheme where they didn't have to worry about him, obviously, because he wasn't in the game. And uh, you didn't hear Khalil Mack's name mentioned quite a bit uh, in that second half of that game because they were double-teaming him the entire time. And, and triple-teaming. Yeah. So uh, it'll be interesting to see who steps up on that uh, interior of the defensive line today. Uh, Bilal Nichols is ready to go, but apparently today he's still listed as questionable with uh, the hand injury. But uh, from what we're hearing and all, all the reports during the week uh, that he may play with a big rap on that hand and uh, at least be a, be a threat to, to get to the quarterback. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I absolutely. And I'm looking forward to the Blackhawks tonight against the Caps. Yeah, the uh, Blackhawks have uh, done some uh, some nice things the last three games. I was at the game Friday, uh, the overtime winner against uh, Columbus. Nice to see the captain get on the board for the first time this <laughs> Even year. Even though it went off his knees. Yeah, <laughs> he, he said it went off his shin pads, but he was not going to steal any thunder from Andrew Shaw's uh, famous uh, shin pads <laughs> chant back in 2013. Right. Uh, so that uh, that didn't, uh, didn't didn't bother him at all. But uh, it was nice to see. Uh, you know, they they fought back a couple of times to 
to uh, quell the tide, so to speak, of Columbus. Uh, pretty good little team, Columbus. Yes, they are. I'll tell yes, you, they're they fast. Are. They skate. Uh, they skate real well. Uh, but the Hawks played very nicely in uh, in that game as well. And I I got my uh, Marion host a bobblehead, which was nice. And uh, of course, tonight's bobblehead yes. is a little more special. This to, is real to us. special, real special. Yeah, it is the uh, John and Troy bobblehead tonight. And uh, who better to get a bobblehead than those two guys, right? I mean, they do such a tremendous job here uh, for us at WGN and also for the Blackhawks. Uh, they're, they're fun to listen to. I got a chance to, to see those guys a little bit before the game uh, the other night as well. And uh, uh, two classy guys. And, you know, Chris Bowden fills out that trio very nicely. No, it's a it's a great team, and I, I have to say, I, I love uh, Troy's comment about the, the, how he looks on the bobblehead. It's <laughs> it's hard to mess up a bald guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that leave that to him for the uh, the self deprecation, of course. But well, uh, but as he he said, hey, when you get a bobblehead, you've made it. It's the truth, and it is. It's the absolute it truth. You know, those guys are a popular pair. I mean, I know that uh, you know the guys on TV get a lot of a uh, lot of play because of. You know, folks will watch the game, but if you haven't listened to a game lately uh, here on WGN Radio, uh, you should because they have a blast. And John Wideman is one of the best in the business, if not the best. Bob the Engineer just brought one in of the bobblehead. Nice. John and Troy. This thing is is classic. It is. That's just gorgeous. Yeah, it's good stuff. It, it absolutely is. And, and truly. As you said, yeah, the TV guys, they get the attention, mm-hmm. but you need to listen. And, I, you know, obviously I grew up back in the day where you didn't get to see the Blackhawks yeah, on TV. Me too. And uh, it was uh, Lloyd Pettit. Yes, was, it was. Uh, was my, it was my – that's how I'd go to sleep at night with the transistor radio, listening to Lloyd Pettit calling uh, Bobby Hull and Stan Makita and all of those guys back in the day. Yeah. He always amazed me. But listening to Lloyd do those games. Shot and a goal. A shot and a goal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just, I, I mean, I still, here come the Hawks. You oh, know, yeah. how, how old is that jingle? And it still reminds me of all of the great history of that team. It's funny you say that because I was playing the song the other day, uh, and uh, my girlfriend wanted to hear it because she hadn't heard it uh, the way it really was. And I had to give the trivia question about who wrote it because it's a Chicago connection to uh, a pop singer of the 80s, uh, Richard Marks, his yes. dad, Dick Marks, and his orchestra were the guys that did that. And I remember, Rick, uh, when the Hawks would come out on the ice for the first time at the stadium, that would blare through the public yes, address system. And that was something that raised the uh, hair on my arms even when I was playing it for her. It's, oh, well, the, the glory days at the old uh, Madhouse. I mean, it's still... Uh, I mean, yeah, it was it was it was time probably in retrospect to to replace the old barn, but uh, I remember the the final season kind of logo uh, was remember the roar, right? Remember the roar, and uh, there was nothing like the place because you were you'd swear it could fall down any minute. <laughs> the, the most precarious places there were the second balcony because you could get a seat in the second balcony of the old stadium where you were actually looking down above the scoreboard. Yes. And trying to decipher who it was out there on the ice. But you know what? You didn't care because you were there, and it was loud, and it was great. And that's when you were also trying to decipher uh, the uh, grandfather clock scoreboard. <laughs> with, the, with the arms that moved. With the rings Yeah, the little time. dials. Yes. Which apparently worked to great success, you know, because, of course, the Hawks had that scoreboard well into the digital age. Yeah. Uh, but apparently it worked as a great device for opposing teams because they were never really sure when a guy was in the penalty box how much time was left on the penalty. Right. 
until the hands went to the right spot. Yeah. Or the guy opened the door in the penalty box to let the guy out. <laughs> and then there was uh, Harvey Wittenberg, of course, saying yes. well, one minute to play in the period. One minute to play in the period. Exactly. Harvey's great, that great monotone uh, that he had. Harvey's a great guy, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great, great times. But Good memories. Uh, yeah. But, but some new memories. Let's create, yes. Yeah, we've got, we've got plenty right. of new memories. Absolutely and right. Kirby Doc. Yeah, that's going to be fun if he gets out there tonight. Uh, I, I got to think. Yeah, it's you know he he's done with his rehab assignment, uh, so to speak, with uh, with Rockford. He's back on the active roster or on the active roster now, and uh, it will be really cool to watch an 18 year old guy make his NHL debut. Uh, I'm not going to put any pressure on him to score a goal in his first game, but you know it would be certainly nice to see. All eyes will be watching. I agree, that's for sure. I definitely got a third rounder, and who was that? Uh, who was a, the great third rounder draft choice that we had? Oh, what's his name again? Yeah, it, uh, I think he's got a C on his sweater. He does, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, Mr. Taves. Yep, the number three overall pick. So, uh, yeah, well, good luck, Kirby, and we're all uh, looking for good things from you as uh, maybe we start a new era here in Chicago. Um, that'd be fun. It'd be great. I could see a couple more Stanley Cups in the future. Maybe he'll get a bobblehead. <laughs> he's got to earn it. Yes, he he's got to earn it. Yes, come he does. On, come on. <laughs> well, Dave's here to keep us up to date on all the news. Andy, of course, is here with the latest sports. Producer Casera is here to field your phone calls. We're at 312-981-7200. You can text us at 312-981-7200. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Sunday spin, all smashed together there. And we're on Twitter at symbol Sunday spin. Engineer Bob is starting to dig out last year's leftover Halloween candy. Well, remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcast at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me here in the studio is the John Wiedemann and Troy Murray uh, bobblehead and if you uh, go to wgnradio.com you can see the various studio cameras and you'll be able to see uh the uh, bobblehead which is it's really classic it's it's I, now i got to figure out a way to go to the game tonight <laughs> and be one of the first 10,000 people to get there uh but uh, well deserved honor by those guys uh Starting a little spin through the national politics, and you've heard uh, Dave uh, report on this during the newscast, but that the president, uh, under uh, tons of criticism, uh, including by Republicans, ethics watchdogs, uh, Democrats, of course, uh, the president uh, tweeted out uh, late Saturday that he would no longer host next year's Group of Seven, the G7 Summit, at his uh, Doral Resort. And that uh, reversal, rare from the president, came two days after the White House said that the decision had already been made and was all set. So Trump acknowledges he's going to look for someplace new. You're listening to The Sunday Spin on WGN. Now The Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson. Uh, interesting week in Washington, of course. We had the fallout of uh, the president's decision to allow Turkey to basically invade northern Syria, sending Vice President Pence over to talk to uh, Erdogan in Turkey. 
there was a announced ceasefire, which turned into more like a pause, according to the Turks, uh, the success of which is still in doubt because of sporadic fighting going on. There was a meeting in the Oval Office on Wednesday with the president and congressional leaders. Didn't go very well. Democrats walked out after the president began name-calling. Here's how uh, Nancy Pelosi described it to reporters. We witnessed on the part of the president was a meltdown. Sad to say. No, it didn't come up. It did not come up. Not at all. No, it did not come up. It did not come up. But he called you a communist? No, he didn't call us a communist. He said you... Yeah. He said, let's just clarify that. He said the communists are taking or some of ISIS were communists, communists and you that would be happy that might that. make you happy that might make you happy and the speaker said yes, yes. yes we walked back yeah. at that point yeah. no, no later, that he was, later. when he started calling Speaker Pelosi, third-rate politician. Which I said, I wish you were a politician, Mr. President, then you would know the art of the possible. The art of the possible. We'll see what happens as uh, the week unfolds, now particularly after this G7 decision. Well, we're going to bring things local now, and joining me on the phone is Melissa Conyers-Irvin. She is the city treasurer for the city of Chicago. Madam Treasurer, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I wanted to have you on for a, a couple of reasons, and obviously we're at interesting times in this city. Uh, we have the teacher strike going on. We're awaiting the mayor's budget message. Um, the the financial issues uh, basically confronting the city are are somewhat staggering, and I know that you, uh, in your campaign as well as in your administration, uh, you've been looking for ways to kind of help drive economic improvement in some of the city's poor neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that have been overlooked, uh, while everybody looks at downtown as, as kind of the growth of the city. And I know that you're looking at this issue of the Catalyst Fund. Um, yeah. What is, maybe you could explain the Catalyst Fund and, and what that's aimed to do. Yes. The Catalyst Fund was initiated by my predecessor as well as Mayor Life's predecessor. And we, uh, many, uh, many people heard about it. It was called 77 Neighborhoods. Um, people call it the Catalyst, um, the Catalyst Fund. But it is a fund that was funded by the city of Chicago with $100 million. And it was really designed to jumpstart communities, especially underserved communities, and ways to help small businesses. Um, so actually this past Friday, my staff and I, we had a meeting on the west side of Chicago at the hatchery in East Garfield Park. And we met with five small business owners to really talk about how the Catalyst Fund can help jumpstart their business and other small businesses in underserved communities. And really, Rick, when you look at communities, if you show me a community that has thriving small businesses, you can show me a thriving community. And that's really what it's all about. We all know that small businesses really help the community in several ways. 
typically these are people that live in the community um, or people that live in a neighboring community. And when they have a, a small business, we have seen that those investments return directly back into the community. And we need people that are vested in our community. When we were talking to one of the business owners, she had mentioned that she hires young people to work at her business during the summer. And I was just at awe when she told me that her being a small business owner, she actually provides a scholarship to one of the children. It may even be one or two of the children that she provides scholarships to that work with her over the summer. That is amazing, and that is exactly what our communities need. Well, and and the thing about small business is that the the customer base tends to be local the employment base tends to be local the ownership yes. is local and it's kind of the churning of the money to to help build up that local economy yes and 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 Rick what i really appreciate about the catalyst fund which makes sense that me as the treasurer would be the chairman of the board of directors for the catalyst fund because the catalyst fund is a little bit different than what we're used to as far as funding in Chicago. Um, most programs we hear about in Chicago are really grants, programs that are provided to residents or businesses. But the Catalyst Fund is unique in that uh, I, I call it a win-win. Number one, we're helping small businesses that are turning around and helping our communities. So that is a win. But number two, we are actually investing in, an, in a company, not necessarily providing a grant. So we're investing with an expected rate of return, which makes sense that the treasurer will be chairman of the board in an instance such as this. When you say rate of return, so the, that does that mean money flows back into the fund? Exactly. That is the intent of the Catalyst Fund. It is to invest. So the city of Chicago would be one of the investors in a company. That means that we are looking for that investment to return to us. So almost like an incubator kind of thing. Very similar to programs you hear about with Axion, Lisk, which are two partners that were also at the hatchery with us at that meeting this past Friday. So what is the status of this program? So the status of the program is that it was created by our predecessors and I think that it's a great program, but um, it had not had the opportunity to jumpstart under the previous administration. And so right now, um, obviously, you know that Mayor Lifeford and I, as the city treasurer, we took office on May 20th. And so within these past four months, um, I've really been focusing on, as the chairman of the board, trying to make certain that we get this um, catalyst fund moving. Now, I can feel comfortable in speaking for Mayor Lifer because it's actually in print that she stated that she is committed to moving this Catalyst Fund forward. I appreciate that. I look forward to working with her on the Catalyst Fund as chairman of the board. And so what I have done thus far is provided a list of names for recommendations for the board of directors to her. You may have read that in the paper where um, we believe that that will be a great opportunity to really get started with this Catalyst Fund by choosing our board of directors, making certain that we have the board in place, 
And so the mayor's team and my team will be meeting very soon um, to actually talk about those recommendations. And then also we are going to be looking at and reviewing to see if any changes are needed or are we going to keep everything as is for the current ordinance um, that, that sits for the Catalyst Fund. And then in addition to that, um, I just had a meeting with some business owners really trying to help figure out exactly what direction we're going to go to make certain that we are using the Catalyst Fund at its intent and also providing the best bang for our buck to make certain that we are using this $100 million um, in a responsible and appropriate manner. But do we have the $100 million? Well, currently the fund does have um, a little under about $75 million. And by December 2019, per the ordinance, um, we should have $100 million. And we get the board going and everything like that, and then we can see where this program takes us. What did you say, Rick? I said then we get we get the board put together, and then we see where this yes. program can take us. Yes, and again, it's a win-win for our city because we get to help small businesses while making a return on our investment. We're speaking with City Treasurer Melissa Conyers-Irvin. I'm Rick Pearson. This is your Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. And joining me on the phone is Melissa Conyers-Irvin. She is the Chicago City Treasurer. And, Madam Treasurer, I know you have coming up uh, a Women's Small Business Expo, and that's on Saturday, November 16th at UIC's Doran Forum at 725 West Roosevelt Road. Uh, tell me about this event. Uh, tell me what your goals are for this event. Yes, and talking about the Catalyst Fund, how we can help small businesses, one thing that I committed to doing as City Treasurer of Chicago is making certain that we are leveraging taxpayers' dollars, and it's time that taxpayers' dollars work for them. And so we want to help promote small businesses. You know, I was talking to, I I recall one of the small business owners that we met with this past Friday was telling us about how they want, they have a, a current business, a current brick and mortar, but they need to expand it. And how when they think about the loans that they have applied for, how the interest rates can be so high that it's kind of almost setting themselves up to go out of business. And that was really disheartening. And I thought about how the Catalyst Fund can help businesses like them. You know, Rick, there's hundreds and thousands of small business owners and those that desire to be small business owners that can be very successful if they just had a little help, which we know the Catalyst Fund can help with. But that leads us to the Women's Small Business Expo on Saturday, November 16th at the UIC Doran Forum. You know, Rick, where I come from, we used to call it just UIC Forum, but right. now it is UIC <laughs> Doran Forum. Naming rights, naming rights. Place. Just naming rights, but it's the same place, the UIC Doran Forum, 725 West Roosevelt, and that is from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. It was very important for me as city treasurer, a young lady born, on, born in Inglewood, raised on the west side of Chicago, that we had an expo that was accessible to people. I didn't want to have it downtown where people couldn't get to or wasn't able to pay for parking. And so we're going to have it at UIC Door Forum on Saturday, November 16th 
everything is free. Uh, registration is free. Um, parking is free. We don't want any barriers. And, and, and UIC Door and Forum, as you know, Rick, is a central location in Chicago. Regardless as to what side of town you live on, UIC Door and Forum at 725 West Roosevelt is easy to get to. So at this um, um, expo, and, and by the way, men always ask me, are we able to come? I'm like, of course. We're not going to close the door on the men. <laughs> but certainly the focus is on women, small business, and entrepreneurs. And we're going to have hundreds of vendors under one roof where resources will be accessible to those that are small business owners and entrepreneurs and those that desire to be. So, for example, Rick, we're going to have two panels. One panel is going to be moderated by CBS2 investigative reporter Dorothy Tucker, and it will include the vice president of sales of Google, um, COO of SunTimes, one of our deputy governors of Illinois, um, um, actually um, someone from AbbVie, and the second panel is going to be talking about procurement, where we're going to have Chicago Department of Aviation. Um, we're going to have the chief procurement officers for the procurement services, as well as Department of Transportation and Highways. And so we're going to make certain that with our vendors, we have someone from the county, the state, the city. There will be governmental agencies from all levels of government, but also we're going to have companies that it is so many vendors that have signed up thus far that we have, but just to give you an example, you know, we have raffle items, which is important, Rick, that everyone register, because when you register, it automatically qualifies you for a raffle, um, to enter the raffle. Some examples of raffle items include um, people to be able to assist with grant proposals, um, as well as insurance and financial review for the current or prospective business owner, um, someone that can help with business tax return preparation, someone that can help with graphic design. We know a lot of businesses are great businesses, but they may need help with branding. Um, these are just examples of what we will have on Saturday, November 16th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So please, everyone have to come. We want to have this. Spread the word. The UIC Door Forum is a huge location. Everyone should be able to come. Again, join us 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at 725 West Roosevelt. And more information, Rick, can be found on my Facebook page at Shy Treasurer. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We want everyone to register, which takes one minute to register. Share it with your family, friends. We're on Facebook.com at Shy Treasurer. And you can uh, also get information if you email City of Chicago Treasurer expo at cityofchicago.org that is correct uh, and and again this is not just for people who are already women who are already our small business owners it's also for people who want to get into and and entrepreneurs to get into business so uh That's it, it's absolutely right it, it sounds like a great event again for more information quickly um facebook at Shy Treasurer. And then also we are on Instagram, Twitter, and we also have a website. 
but just it, everyone has a web everyone has internet now so look me up chicago treasure melissa cunyers urban um, but the easy way is just on facebook to give me a shy treasurer that's our city treasurer melissa cunyers urban madam treasurer as always thank you so much for joining me this morning thank you rick and have a good day everyone now back to the tribunes rick pearson it's the sunday spin on 720 wgn Good Sunday morning. Welcome to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio, joined by my good friend Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Hey, Rick. Thank How are you, you? Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Well, no, actually, you would have if it was last week and it was the marathon, you would have missed it. I would have missed you it for that thing. You would not have found a way here. No, that's that's true, and not because I was running the marathon. Uh, well, now, why not? You seem like you could do a marathon. You know, I, I, pr- I appreciate that. I've never run a marathon. Really? No. Well, it's a marathon. I thought about it. I thought deeply, have you really? I thought deeply about it. No, one, you're, you're, one, no yeah. you're kidding me. No, one day, like about seven years ago. <laughs> For a brief moment in time. <laughs> right. It was it was a brief <laughs> passing moment in time. It was fleeting. Yeah, I bet it was. But, but in my mind. Not with I your finished. feet. Yeah, I broke four. I I, I broke a four minute mile. Four minute mile. Yeah, for twenty six yeah. miles. Congratulations! Thank you. In your Thank mind. You. In my mind. Okay, so now you've defeated the qualification purposes for talking <laughs> about anything else for the rest of this hour. <laughs> now we're going to talk more substantive issues, and in fact. Um, Jason's been very kind that after we've had these Democratic debates, I think he even did a pre-debate visit here, uh, to kind of take a look at where the candidates stand. Um, And uh, I want to play uh, just kind of a mash cut here of of some of the, uh, I won't say highlights, some of the rhetoric. I'm not sure there were any highlights. There were highlights. Well, well, Let's, okay. okay. Yeah, well, right. on, on the other side. I know, but right? as, a, as a friend of mine told me, uh, he understands that the Republican National Committee now is willing to fund every Democratic <laughs> debate, is, and they have one every. They have to have one every week because of the success that the Democrats are doing. To That's themselves. payback for 2016. <laughs> no kidding. No <laughs> and, kidding. And all of their debates. Indeed, indeed. But I want to start here. This is kind of a uh, a bit of high and perhaps lows from the last debate. And I'm sorry, Elizabeth, but you have not said that. And I think we owe it to the American people to tell them where we're going to send the invoice. I was surprised to hear that you did not agree with me that on this subject of what should be the rules around corporate responsibility for these big tech companies, when I called on Twitter to suspend Donald Trump's uh, account, that you did not agree. Senator Warren said we can't be running any vague campaigns. We've got to level with people. We've got to level with people and tell them exactly what we're going to do, how we're going to get it done, and if you can get it done. But I want to give a reality check here to Elizabeth, because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires. Not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. Make it clear that they're not going anywhere and have them protect it and work my way back toward what, in fact, needs to be done, protecting those Kurds. They lost their lives. This is shameful. Shameful what this man has done. The slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand. When we think our only choices are between endless war or total isolation, 
The consequence is the Thank disappearance you, of U.S. leadership from the world stage, Senator, and that makes this entire world a more dangerous place. What does the president do? He says, I believe Vladimir Putin. I believe Vladimir Putin. I don't believe our intelligence committee. Of Vladimir no, no, Putin. I'm not. No, 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 no. Women have been given the responsibility to perpetuate the human species. Our bodies were created to do that. And it does not give any other person the right to tell a woman what to do with that body. It is her body. It is her right. It is her decision. We codify Roe v. Wade. The public is already there. Things have changed. That's right. When I proposed reforming the Supreme Court, some folks said that was too bold to even contemplate. Now, I'm not talking about packing the court just with people who agree with me, although I certainly will appoint people who share my values. For example, the idea that women's reproductive freedom is an American right. Uh, In my judgment, Trump is the most corrupt president in the history of this country. This president, and I agree with Bernie, Senator Sanders, is the most corrupt president in modern history, and I think all of our history. Our framers imagined this moment, a moment where we would have a corrupt president. And our framers then rightly designed our system of democracy to say there will be checks and balances. This is one of those moments. And we'll close there with uh, Kamala Harris. Um, I have to say... I I didn't find much in this other than maybe the overall kind of theme of the attacks on Elizabeth Warren as as kind of an acknowledgement that now she has uh, perhaps even and has in some polls superseded uh, Joe Biden and the attacks came on her as you heard at the beginning Biden was not so much the subject of of the attack, and I wonder if that represents kind of a diminishing uh, viewpoint that or that his his standing in the polls has diminished, that, that he's no longer the the candidate, the front runner that the others are trying to go after. Well, the rule of thumb is always you want to try to put an arrow on somebody whose balloon is rising, and that's that's definitely, I mean, from a tactical standpoint in terms of debate preparation, and that certainly has been worn, and Biden has been slipping back. I mean, if you look at, there was a poll a couple of weeks ago, the CNN, or the CBS USA Today poll that had a three-way tie in first place place in Iowa, Sanders, Warren, and Biden. This week, there was uh, the Emerson poll that had Biden knotted up with Warren in Iowa with uh, Buttigieg third and Sanders kind of floating back to fourth. So I think that's reflective in what happened the other night. I would depart, though. I think the first hour of the, the debate was illustrative in terms of how the candidates see each other but also substantively, I think it was a, a good debate, once again, often being centered on the health care issue, which health care plan is going to work, which writ large health care system is going to be better. We're going to see more of that. I thought once we got beyond the first hour, the candidates had spent a lot of time and their ammunition at that point. And the, I thought the second hour was borderline incomprehensible from a viewer perspective uh and the third hour was too although strangely it was the last half hour where i thought joe biden was actually the most effective the point where nobody's watching yes but he was as vigorous as he had been which perhaps speaks well to his overall vigor you know into the 90th minute of the debate but he and warren and sanders 
we're going back and forth at the end once again about whose plans made sense on health care. It sort of circled back to that. And I thought that Biden was strangely effective at the end because he was less rhetorical. He simply was just pointing out what the cost was and using, a, I would argue, a common sense pocketbook approach. You just have to figure out how to pay for it and tell us how to pay for it. Now, there may be answers to that. There are answers to that, I suspect. But I thought in terms of framing the issue, that was about as effective as he was throughout the evening. So I guess I would say first hour, informative and combative in a positive way. Second hour, a wash. Third hour, vaguely helpful to voters. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson with the Chicago Tribune. And have a have a text message saying we haven't heard a question from Ron yet today. What, do you, what should we do about that? I think we should probably ask Ron. Welcome to the show. What's your question, Ron? No, good, good, good morning, Rick. Uh, my, my question to your guest. Uh, the president is pretty much indicating he's going to run on what's perceived as a strong economy, which is typically a, a good position for a sitting president. Uh, what will be the main issue that the Democrats can um, galvanize behind? I still think that it's, it's, it's health care, but could it possibly be something that's going on in the Middle East or you know, that's it. But that's the main question. What can they get to galvanize the voters behind? Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Well, Ron, I suppose, first of all, you're right about health care. Um, and if we look at the 2018 midterms, that was a major issue for Democrats to run on there. Not simply what kind of health care plan they're proposing, but rather what the Republicans are proposing about the protection currently exists, pre-existing conditions and 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 the like. So that is still if you if if you look at polls around the country, that's still an issue that galvanizes people and is important. But the economy comes first in most polls. And so it's going to be an argument about what kind of economy we actually have and what kind of economy we're going to have going forward. So it's not so much what's happening in the economy based on certain measures it's who's it working for and that's where you're going to have arguments about who's gotten the bulk of the tax cuts who's gotten the relief who's carrying the burdens what's happening income inequality income inequality i think those issues will be primary issues on the foreign policy stuff i think that'll merge into much larger arguments about what's happening to america on the world stage and what america looks like on the world stage and so that's where events this week i think tie into those themes as well but where does that fall as far as a voter concern i think lower it's one of those things that seems more important when there's in the immediacy in the immediacy the act if there's an imminent crisis right so arguments about making america less safe i think people get that intellectually you know if they if they're told look if we abandon this area in northern Syria, ISIS comes back in. That makes America less safe. People understand that, I think, intellectually. But viscerally and emotionally, that doesn't resonate quite as strongly unless there is an attack. So what wins out the commitment to, uh, as Trump says, to, to remove troops from Syria? But Well, I think a way to understand most of what Donald Trump does... <laughs> is through the prism of the 7 to 9 million voters who voted for Barack Obama and also voted for Donald Trump. And I think for those voters, the 7 to 9 million voters estimated across the country who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump in 2016, important issues are issues involving trade, immigration, 
removing America from foreign conflicts because those are people who don't deserve our help as much as our own people deserve our help. This would be kind of the worldview. And if you think about every issue that Trump has tried to own in some way over the past couple of years, trade and tariffs, immigration and the wall, and quote-unquote removing our troops from foreign conflicts, of course, these troops are not being removed from abroad. They're actually being moved to Western Iraq. Um, I think those actions are taken with purely political purposes in mind so that you can you can easily then go back in 2020 and run based on all of those principles. High tariffs supposedly are better for American industries. That would be the argument. It's certainly an argument that would be made to people who reside within the communities where a lot of these industries once were stronger. Uh, immigration, uh, you know, we build the wall, and again, we we preserve American jobs. So the argument would go. So to me, these are a constellation of policies that are built around an electoral strategy, and that strategy is to continue to win those voters because those are the voters that guarantee you, at least in theory, the eleven thousand additional votes you needed to win Michigan last time around, the twenty three thousand votes you needed to win Wisconsin, the forty four thousand votes you needed to win Pennsylvania. And he's aware of that because in each of those states, in Wisconsin, despite what happened in twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen, Tony Evers was elected governor by about point four percent. In Michigan, the Democrats flipped two House seats in twenty eighteen. In Pennsylvania, the Democrats flipped four House seats. These states are very much still in play. So each of those issues becomes wedge issues that are crucial for winning in 2020. But they're very close on the margins. Close on the margins. And that's the point, right? We got these close margins in 2016. We've got Democrats striking back in 2018. These things are very much in flux and in play for 2020, these states. Going back to the debate uh, stage, are we, do you think we're, we're down to like four candidates? As far as, you know, I, I kind of look at uh, Biden and Pete Buttigieg as kind of the more moderate part of the of the Democrats. And then, I you know, I look at Warren and uh, Bernie as the more progressive side. Are we are, are, is it too is it too much to say where the field is that limited right now? I think out of 19 correct. candidates. I think you're correct. If we look back at, for example, 2008, in particular fall of 2007, at this point in 2007, the top three were the top three. You had Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards. Now, their order would change around between this period in 2007 and all the way through South Carolina uh, in that primary cycle. But those top three were set. This time around, you've got more or less this top three of Sanders and Warren and Biden. But as I said, even in the polling, as as near as a week ago, Buttigieg had moved up to fourth, and he was at 14%, only nine points behind the other three. Let's talk more about Pete Buttigieg when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. This is your Sunday Spin. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio with my good friend Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Uh, Just wanted to uh, play a couple of cuts on uh, Friday. 
uh, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, was on the southwest side at a meet and greet where he was endorsing uh, Marie Newman, who's the primary challenger to Congressman Dan Lipinski, uh, doing a meet and greet, taking lots of selfies. Had a chance to try to ask him a question, but he interrupted me. You come across in the debates as kind of a unifier. Um, you have a great, you have a great radio voice. I actually do radio. I was about to say, I do radio yeah, on you're Sunday. Print- you're always welcome yeah. on my show. Yeah, I, would, I would love to do that. Like you're not a print journalist. You're a radio voice. Thank you very yes. much. Yeah, I am actually a print journalist too. And uh, but I'm going to hold him up on this that he said he would uh, do the show. But I finally got a chance to ask the question. You come across on the stage as, as kind of a unifier and, and don't adopt the Donald Trump lines and that kind of thing. Is that enough to create a great differentiation or pitch to, to voters? Look, I, I think people are going to look at the totality of who I am. I'm a guy that rose in a tough inner city. Uh, literally a documentary about me called Street Fight, about how I fought my way to transform in a city. How in Washington, in the in the midst of broken D.C., got big bills done, like the criminal justice reform bill. So I think when people see who I am, but but I always tell people, whether it's in Washington or in Newark, that we need to create uncommon coalitions to create uncommon results. We can't rip ourselves apart as a country. Uh, when I play football, I knew we were going to score a touchdown when I heard the defensive huddle arguing amongst themselves. I'd be like, we're we're going to score. Well, we have a global competition going on, and our team can't be ripping itself and tearing itself down. We did big things in this country, from going to the moon to beating the Nazis when we pulled together, created new American coalitions. If we're going to beat climate change, if we're going to transform our country to be a nation where healthcare is a right for all, these take bigger mobilizations and partisan mobilizations. And so my running, I caution Democrats, we cannot define ourselves by what we're against. We need to start talking about what we're for. We can't even define ourselves in the partisan terms that we're to beat Republicans. No, it's just a moral moment that requires us to unite Americans in common cause and common purpose so that we can deal with the big justice issues that we're facing and seize the opportunity in the 21st century. He's certainly a senator. He's definitely a senator. (laughs) I think he was simply stunned by the power of your radio voice. And it sent him reeling, where he could not, he, he just couldn't answer the question succinctly. Well, as, as a good friend of mine said, he, at least he didn't say he had a face for radio. And I said, well, he is a politician after all. He's no. been a he's been a good performer in the debates, but he sounded a lot of those notes that you're talking about there. And the same thing kind of happened, right? We we sort of listened to the answer. It seemed moderately compelling, but it didn't seem very pointy in the sense that it jumped out. And that's been him in a lot of these settings. That's why a lot of people think, well, he's really running for vice president. That's really what he's right. Doing. Or or is, is it's like a resume kind of thing? Is is you know for down the road? Maybe, but but here's something else to think about in that poll that I referenced earlier, which was the CBS USA Today poll from about a week ago, which in political life can seem like a year ago, when they asked Iowa voters in that poll what was important to them about a candidate running for president, in the Democratic primary, Democratic primary voters, 97% of them said a candidate that can unify people. We think of the Democratic electorate as being fed up, angry possessing visceral outrage and it's true but if you ask them they will at least say we want somebody that will unify he's making somewhat of a bet on that so is Buttigieg right all of the themes that Buttigieg is striking in his opening statements to the extent there are any in these debates and if you listen to his performance on Tuesday night 
was kind of funneling up all of these answers to the idea of we have to be able to resume the country as we know it in a unified way after Trump is gone. So although, although you know, in some respects, he's trying to have it both ways because he's he's like, well, people talk about returning to normal. There is no normal anymore. But where he's where departing from somebody like Biden, for example, is that Biden is saying Trump is the problem. Buttigieg is saying Trump is a symptom of the problem, which is what Warren is saying, too. And this is the other point that I think is really important about this primary. Before the break, Rick, you asked about four candidates, two who are more moderate at this point, Biden and Buttigieg, two who are more progressive, Warren and Sanders. I think broadly stated that's true. But if you dig a little deeper into the numbers, you see some interesting things. You see, for example, in Iowa, if you average out polls over the past couple of months, Elizabeth Warren leads in among progressives. She gets about 37%, but she's also second among those who classify themselves in the Democratic primary as moderate or conservative Democrats. She gets 20% of the vote. She's not fourth or fifth or sixth. She's second among those votes. She's a second choice. And on the flip side, Pete Buttigieg, if you look at the Emerson poll that came out this week, he is pulling 16% of the voters who voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016. 16%. Bernie Sanders is only pulling 19% of those voters. He only has 3% more of the people who voted for him in 2016 than the the so-called moderate Buttigieg. So I think... It's much more fluid in Iowa as between what we perceive from the outside as these two lanes of progressive and moderate. I think Democratic primary voters, yes, largely fall along those lines. If you go onto Twitter, they definitely fall along those lines. But I think if you go out to Democrats as a whole, it's much more nuanced than that in terms of who they're looking for. But as part of that, perhaps Iowa itself, because, I mean, it's not... Uh, what I would wildly describe as as a progressive state among a progressive Democrat. Okay, but then you go to the early map and the states that are in play. Iowa is is New Hampshire that liberal of a state? Probably not. If you look at South Carolina, African American voters who are lined up at this point. They're not lined up with the most progressive candidate, Warren or Sanders. Biden. They're lined up with Biden. He's more of the moderate candidate. Maybe Nevada, um, although it's such a strong union state, it's it's hard to know exactly which way that would cut also. So if you look at the early states that give oxygen to campaigns, if you do well there, uh, it seems much more fluid to me in terms of where these candidates are, are actually going and where they're pulling support from. Obviously, again, we we touch on this a, a lot of attention given to the health care issue. And, I mean, Warren's inability to say whether the middle class would be taxed, uh, which uh, Sand- Bernie Sanders has already acknowledged that it, they would be under his plan. Um, but, you know, kind of also coming to that fine line about uh, Medicare for all and private insurance. And... I think we know where the lines are on who is what. So why do we have to keep revisiting this issue over again? I think it's useful to revisit it. I I know those of us who watch these debates regularly think, oh, we've covered this already, but not everybody watches every single debate. And I actually think the debate has gotten more refined as we've got, gone along. I think the candidates... Well, I definitely, on, the, I, on healthcare, I, I, yes. On, on that issue, I think Klobuchar, who had a very good night on Tuesday night, and Buttigieg 
were more pointed in their critique, which pointed a sharper light on the issues of not only how to pay for it, but what the cost is going to be. And I think what Klobuchar and Buttigieg did on Tuesday night was they bridged a problem that John Delaney, the late, great John Delaney, we might say, (laughs) had earlier on when he had called, made many of the same complaints to Warren, and had really been smacked down very effectively by Warren. And it's always difficult, I think, when you are proposing something that seems more moderate to seem bold. Right. And Delaney looked very much timid right. in that exchange. And I think what the more moderates did the other night was they were just more vigorous in the critique, and that made it a much sharper contrast, but also didn't make it sound like what they were for was more timid. Now, the flip side is also true. Warren is a very effective debater. She was under siege all the time on Tuesday night and more or less held in there pretty well. She's going to have similar critiques to the so-called public option. I mean, what does a world with the public option actually look like? Are insurance companies just going to wither away? Because that is what Buttigieg is arguing, that eventually he calls it a, a glide path to Medicare for all is by having the public option. Well, what does that process actually look like? Do private insurance companies simply wither away? Do they charge higher premiums to the people who decide they're going to stay on private health insurance? I don't think we know the answers to that. And I'm not taking a position on that here today. What I am saying, though, is as a matter of debate, I think there's a further debate to have through rhetorical tactics, using language to paint a picture of what the future is going to look like. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And now I think Bernie and Warren have a chance to come back and lodge similar complaints against uh, Pete, Biden, and Amy Klobuchar. We're speaking with Jason DeSanto, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune, joined here in the WGN Skyline studio by Jason DeSanto, my good friend, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. We were talking about the Democratic debates, but I want to switch subjects here in just the final few minutes we have. Uh, The death of uh, Elijah Cummings, uh, head of the uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, um, and and quite a, a pillar uh, in in the house and uh, other than the president's uh, condolence message uh, I, I do think that the condolence messages of a number of house republicans were indeed uh, came from the heart i think he was a very respected member of the body it's somebody who served with distinction and also with passion for the people that he represented you can't ask for much more than that what does this do about impeachment since oversight was one of the three committees that is part of the impeachment inquiry uh, of Donald Trump? I think there's a little bit of a question about who's going to fill the spot, um, and that arguably could slow things down, but a lot of the activity has moved away from the oversight committee also. Well, it's Adam Schiff and, Adam and the Sch- House Intelligence Committee. Yep, yep. And so um, it, it shouldn't slow anything down. I, I doubt that it will. But we are starting to get into the question of what is the timetable here, and I know Pelosi's gotten a lot of uh, questions about that, and the Speaker has said the timetable is governed by the Constitution, not by politics. We're not concerned about going into 2020. We're concerned about making sure this is done correctly. I think broadly stated that's true, um, but I think there are some questions about what it's going to look like if we have the middle of an impeachment inquiry into the early part of next year, which 
I think at this point is likely to be the timetable. Just back to Elijah Cummins, I, 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 I'm, I'm almost of the feeling that he's not going to get the due uh, attention that he's deserved because we're in this atmosphere of impeachment. Yes and no. I mean, I, I Rick, I did see some people saying that one of the last things he did, he was sick for a while, was he signed subpoenas to be issued related to the investigation. So as it is in so many things, after somebody passes, the question is, what do their life mean? What do they stand for? That's really what a eulogy is about from a speech perspective. And so people come to represent something. They come to stand for something. And I think the people who are friends of his, people who were allies of his, people who really respected him, will come to make the argument that this is proceeding and making sure that no one is above the law is something that he believed in. And so we're doing something that's consistent with what he lived for and what he thought was most important. So I think in that way... He can be honored through their actions, and they'll say as much. Do you believe impeachment should roll into 2020 and be, be guided by the Constitution, as Pelosi says, or the feeling that people want some action at least uh, by Thanksgiving time? Impeachment is a funny animal. It's Isn't a, it? It's, it, it's it, a legal it's concept. A, it's a camel. It's a <laughs> It's 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 designed by committee. It is a it is a multi-humped creature. Yes, I think what we really have here is we have something which is within the Constitution, but has a a, a clearly political dimension to it because you have public representatives who are doing the voting, you have people in the Senate who are going to decide whether or not to convict to convict. So it's a hybrid. Whether or not it is something that is genuine, I think Pelosi is correct that it should be governed by whatever it is that is uncovered and the ability to ventilate those issues. And when you have people marching down from the State Department against the wishes of the administration to testify about the concerns that they had, that is the process, in my view, working as it should. Facts are being adduced. They are being assembled. And from that, there will be a set of charges. That said, I think Schiff has been very clear with the Democratic conference that to some extent the best evidence is the evidence that's the most public, which is the transcript of the call that Trump had with the Ukrainians. So what we have here Not is... Not to mention Mick Mulvaney speaking in the White House press room. Yeah. So you, you kind of have this situation where what's public is very damaging, but you have all the, these other people who've dedicated their lives to foreign service uh, coming forward and saying... This is not the way foreign policy is, is to be conducted. And we definitely were told to work through Rudy Giuliani, who is not an employee of the United States government, let alone the State Department. Um, it's what about as far as Republican complaints about this? These interviews are being done behind closed doors and, and they're, they, they want transparency, they, let alone they want a floor vote. To yeah, I mean, them. I mean, they have people there. Uh there is some reticence to take a vote on the Democratic side to have a full inquiry because the Speaker doesn't want to put into jeopardy people who are in districts where that might be difficult for them to take the vote. If you look at the polling among the public, the public is now over 50%, about 52%, if you average all the polls, I think, uh, saying that the inquiry is well-founded. 
a little less than 50, if you average the polls on whether Trump should be removed, those numbers are about even, 49-48 on the inquiry in swing districts. So it's a much closer proposition. She wants to protect those people. But you could also say the opposite, that you would put Republicans on the spot to have to take a vote on whether or not there should be an inquiry. Politically, I think that would be useful at this point. That's Jason DeSanto, my good friend, senior lecturer at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Jason, as always, thank you. And uh, I suppose we'll be talking again after the next Democratic debate. Thanks, Rick. Enjoyed it.